0: Well, welcome to Alpine Church, guys. It's great to have you here this morning. It's great that you chose to be here, that you're worshiping with us, and I do just want to say if you're here for the first time, thank you so much for checking us out. I hope you feel right at home, and I'd like to just offer a special welcome to any college students who might be here for the first time, or maybe the first time in a while. We don't Get very many at 9 a.m. They'll come dragging in at 10:30 and 12. But glad to have them back in the valley and to be with us today. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor here at Alpine Logan, and I am excited to dig into God's Word today as we head into week two of our sermon series called Spiritual Warfare. Last week we kicked off the series with kind of a, a 30,000 foot overview about spiritual warfare. We talked about the fact that spiritual warfare isn't just the things that we can talk about that make the hair on your arm stand up. That's part of it. But it's much more than that. It's even the everyday things that often we don't recognize are a spiritual battle. And we introduced three arenas of spiritual warfare, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And today we're going to dig deeper into one of those arenas, an arena that you and I battle every single day. And that's the battle that we have with the world. The reality is, as believers, we are at war with the world. Now, the passage that we're using for these three arenas, kind of the big idea, is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So if you have your Bible with you or your Bible app, do me a favor and turn there. And I'm going to read this for you. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world... So there we see the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There's that third area of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So today we're going to dig into the world. Next week we're going to hit the flesh, and then the following week we're going to talk about the devil when I think of the world, I think of that pull from the outside that seeks to draw us away from God. The flesh is that pull that we all have from the inside because we're all fallen, we're all broken, and then the devil is orchestrating both of those. So I want to start with kind of a definition of the world. The world is an organized system in opposition and rebellion against God. The world is more than just the earth, it's more than just what we can see. One definition of the world is it's the totality of all human intelligence, ideas, activity, and thought apart from God. The fact that it's an organized system means that there is a strategy to it. It also means that somewhere there is an authority behind it. Ephesians 2.1 says that there is a course of this world, that there's a direction to it, there's a pattern to it, and ever since the fall, that direction has been away from God, and it didn't take long. If we go back and look all the way back in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says that everything mankind thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So this battle with the world is nothing new. We're not the first generation of believers who've had to fight it. And I would say it's not even as bad now as it was then. I mean, as bad as things are, I don't think we would say that every single thought and imagination of mankind is evil. If you know the story, you know that God cleansed the world with the flood And then not very long after that, in Genesis chapter 11, you see this pooling of ideas and energy and resources again away from God with the story of the Tower of Babel. They wanted to bring attention to themselves, they wanted to glorify themselves and move in a direction away from God. And that theme carries on all throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture, you see this contrast of the things of the world with the things of God. And there's a reason for that. And Paul talks about this reason in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says, Satan, who is God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. And we see here that Satan is given the title of the God of this world. But you notice God isn't capitalized. Satan is not divine, he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, he's a created being, but he has been given some authority here in this world. And it says that he has blinded the minds of those who don't believe so that they can't see the glorious light of the good news Without the spirit of God working, none of us would see the glorious light of the good news before we put our faith in Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 1:18 says, "The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing." Have you ever been sharing the good news about Jesus with someone, and in your mind, you're thinking, how do you not see it? How can you not tell that this is the greatest news that's ever been told? but they just don't see it. The reality is their minds have been blinded. We talked last week that spiritual warfare is primarily a battle of the mind. Here's another passage that talks about the devil's authority over the world. John says, We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. I want to make sure that we're clear that even though the devil is described as Having authority over the world, he only has as much authority as God allows him to have. The devil can only do what the sovereign God allows him to do. We see that all throughout Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament in the story of Job. We see that the devil had to come and ask permission before he could attack Job. He couldn't do anything without God allowing him to do it. We see that in the New Testament as well. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he told Peter, he said, Peter, the devil has asked to sift you like wheat. Again, the devil had to ask. He had to get permission. And in this case, God didn't allow it to happen. The devil wanted to totally destroy Peter. That's what it means by sift you like wheat. God didn't allow that. Even though Peter denied Jesus three times that night, he was restored to Jesus. He wasn't completely destroyed. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds us that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. I can guarantee you if it was up to the devil, he would tempt you beyond what you can bear. But God hasn't allowed him to do that. God has put a limit on it. He's put a cap on it. So we don't have to fear as believers when we see verses that talk about the control that the devil has over the world for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's all under the sovereignty of God. And number two, that control doesn't apply to us as believers. The devil has no control over you as a child of God. John is contrasting here the children of God, which is all of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And he says it's the world around us is under the control of the evil one, not us. So we don't have to fear Satan's limited authority. That's going to bring us into our next point, And that's that the world establishes a foothold by putting ideas in your head that go against God's word. See, the world wants to create a foothold. We talked about this last week. That's an offensive position where they can gain more ground and eventually establish a stronghold in your life. And it does that by putting ideas in your mind. There's that battle again, that spiritual battle in the mind that go against God's Word. And I would say the world has been very effective at creating footholds that lead to strongholds, even in the church. And so I know because of that, that I have a feeling that some of what I'm about to say is likely going to offend some people today. And I just pray that you would search God's Word and see if what I'm saying is true. That if you are offended, you would ask yourself why. And I pray that you would know that I'm sharing this because I care about you, because I want the best for you. Just like Paul wanted the best for the church in Colossae when he wrote the following Colossians 2, verse 8. Paul says, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high sounding nonsense that come from human thinking from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. That sounds like almost everything I hear from the world today. High-sounding nonsense. So much of what culture, the media, and even academia is trying to shove down your throat is nothing more than high-sounding nonsense. It is utter foolishness. There are school districts in this country that have authorized to put litter boxes in their restrooms in case a student identifies as a cat. And part of you wants to laugh at that but part of that breaks my heart that that's where we are in this world. We have female swimmers who had to compete against a biological male this year and if you were on the pin team you had to share a locker room with him. We're bombarded with terms like non binary, gender fluid, pansexual, and birthing person that are absolutely nonsense. They're utter foolishness. And I know that just by saying that, there's a good chance some of you are upset. That I could be labeled as a hate monger, as a bigot, or as narrow minded. I can promise you I don't hate anyone struggling with their identity. My heart breaks for them. My heart breaks that they've bought into a lie that they don't know that they were fearfully and wonderfully made by a perfect, almighty God. My heart breaks that they're broken, just like I'm broken, just like every one of you are broken. My heart breaks because they need Jesus, just like you and I needed Jesus. They need to know that the God of the universe has a plan for their life and that he loves them and cares for them just the way he created them. I want to take a minute and take a closer look at six areas where the world is trying to create a foothold, where they're trying to, to gain more ground. I would say this list isn't exhaustive. There are other areas the world is trying to get, and there are other bad ideas the world is throwing at you. I'm going to present one bad idea with each one of these areas, and the first one I want to talk about is social media. One of the bad ideas social media tries to throw at you is that your value is directly proportional to your number of likes or followers. I think this is one of the most cunning footholds the devil has right now in our culture. Now, I'm not saying all social media is evil or of the devil. I'm not saying you shouldn't be on social media, but I am saying you need to recognize the lies and the bad ideas that social media is throwing at you. See, social media is supposed to be about connection. (laughs) That's how it's touted. But it's a cheap substitute for real connection. Because in real connection, you get to be you. In real connection, you get to be honest about your shortcomings. That's not at all what we do on social media. You're not supposed to have to put on a face in real connection, but that's exactly what happens on social media And so many of our young people tie their value into how many likes and followers they get on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever app it is that you're using. And they not only put on a face, they filter it or use Photoshop before they post the face. And it's not just our young people, adults do it too. You know, Many of you know that my daughter Jordan plays volleyball on a local club team here in the valley. And last year when we got her team pictures back, they had been photoshopped, and I was lit. I was mad. In fact, Rhonda and Jordan had to talk me off the ledge because I was ready to go down and talk to the coaches. I was ready to cause a scene, and they said, Dad, please don't. And so I didn't, but I still feel like I probably should have said something honestly. See, I, I love my daughter just the way she is. I think she's beautiful just like she is. God created her the way He created her for a reason, and I don't need somebody to go in and change her to make her look the way they think she should look. Don't Photoshop my daughter in your pictures. And in a similar way, I think that's the righteous anger that God feels when His children buy into the lie that you need to look a certain way to be valuable. God created you the way He created you for a reason. So replace that bad idea about your value coming from the world's idea of what you should look like with the truth that the almighty God of the universe created you for a purpose and he loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins so that you can have a relationship with him. The second arena that I want to look at is commercialism. And the bad idea the world throws at you is you can only be happy if you buy the product we're selling right now. And as 21st century Americans, we've definitely bought into this one, pun intended. (laughs) Think of some of the things you've bought in the moment that afterwards you were like, what was I thinking? Some of those late night infomercial purchases, right? I mean, let's be honest, anybody here ever bought a Chia Pet? You don't have to raise your hand. Anybody here ever bought a Thigh Master? Anybody ever bought a Snuggie? And if you're a guy and you raise your hand, I'm going to ask for your man card after the sermon, just so you know. (laughs) See, so many of us are constantly on the lookout for the newer, bigger, faster, whatever it is. That's all a cheap substitute. Remember, this is a foothold. So the devil wants commercialism to be a foothold so that he can make the stronghold of greed, of discontentment, of financial pressure, because financial pressure is going to create more stress in your marriage. Or maybe you feel like God is calling you to go into professional ministry or to go on an extended mission trip, but you live a certain lifestyle that you're accustomed to, and so you say, I can't afford it. I can't do that, God. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 6, where he told us not to worry about what we would eat or what we would drink or what we would wear. I can only imagine what he would tell us not to worry about. Instead, Jesus said to seek God and his righteousness and all these other things would be added unto you. God is not anti-wealth. God is anti-temporal wealth. God wants you to have wealth that lasts for eternity, not wealth that is here today and then gone tomorrow. There's so much peace and joy in contentment. And one of the most famous verses in the Bible is Philippians 4.13. that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But most Christians don't know the context of that verse. He's not talking about an athletic feat. He's not talking about climbing a mountain. Paul's talking about contentment there. Paul said, I've learned how to be content whether I have plenty to eat or whether I'm hungry. I've learned how to be content whether I'm living in want or whether I'm living in plenty. And I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. Because in Jesus Christ, we have everything we need, not only in this world, but in the world to come. A relationship with Jesus fills that longing in our heart and that void in our life that a new iPhone, a new Mercedes, or a new ski boat can't fill. And I'm not calling you out if you have a new iPhone, Mercedes, and a ski boat. I rejoice for you. God bless you. That's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you look to those things for contentment, you're never going to be satisfied. And the devil will use that to create a foothold. Okay, the next one I want to talk about is news and politics. And the bad idea that they're throwing at you is that unborn children do not have a right to life. Now, there's certainly no shortage of bad ideas to choose from when it comes to news and politics. I could have done the whole sermon just on this topic. But perhaps the most tragic idea being pushed through the media and through our political leaders, is that unborn children don't have a right to life. Earlier this year, there was a landmark decision, I'm sure most of you know about, where the Supreme Court overturned Roe v.ersus Wade and gave regulation of abortions back to the states, and I was crushed at how many people who identify as Christians were furious over that decision. Even people who attend Alpine. See, The reality is they've allowed the devil to gain a foothold. Psalm 139 clearly tells us, it says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. The Bible is clear that life starts at conception. And and there's been laws ever since the Bible was written We still have laws on the books today that affirm that. Here's one from Exodus chapter 21. It says, suppose two men are fighting, and in the process they accidentally strike a pregnant woman so she gives birth prematurely. If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands and the judges approve. But if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury. A life for life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, etc., That further injury is for the wife or the child. See, God recognizes that a child's life is just as valuable as an adult's life. That child is fearfully and wonderfully made and created in the image of Almighty God. And for years now, even in our culture, we understood that. So many states have laws on the books that say if you're driving drunk and you get in a car crash and you hit a woman who is pregnant and that child dies, she miscarries, you can be charged for vehicular manslaughter, as you should be. We act like we don't know. Again, it's high-sounding nonsense. And this is a place where the devil has fortified his position. It's not just a foothold anymore. It's a stronghold, even in the church. Barna did a survey a couple of years ago where they asked people who identified as Christians to rank the issues that they feel were the biggest affront to a holy God. And in that survey, they ranked not recycling as a bigger sin than abortion. Now certainly, guys, God has called us to be good stewards of this earth. God has called us to manage our resources well, but to think that not recycling is a bigger issue to a holy God than killing millions of unborn babies every year is high-sounding nonsense. I do want to say on this topic that for any woman who has had to make that decision or for any man who has encouraged or persuaded a woman to have an abortion, that God's forgiveness and grace are bigger than any mistake you've made and that he longs to have a relationship with you, he longs to take that shame and guilt away next idea is false religions. Next arena, excuse me, is false religions. And here's their bad idea. If you follow these rules, you'll earn a place in heaven. Essentially, every world religion except biblical Christianity teaches that if you follow the rules well enough, if you do enough good things, or at least if your good things outweigh your bad things, then you get to go to heaven or enlightenment or whatever their next step is. The Bible clearly says you can't do that. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we can't do anything to save ourselves and that we need a rescuer. Now, once we have been saved, we should definitely live a life that honors God. We just spent 10 weeks in the pursuit. And half of that time, we talked about how to live a life that honors God. Certainly, we should look to honor God in the way we live, but it has nothing to do with our salvation. We do it out of gratitude because He has already saved us through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2:8 and 9 It says, it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. It is a gift from God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So we live to honor God out of a sense of gratitude for what He has done and because He says that He has made us a new creation. The next arena that we have bad ideas coming from us in is progressivism. And the bad idea we get here is that the Bible is old-fashioned and it talks way too much about sin Now, this is certainly another one that the devil has used effectively to create footholds, even in the church. There are a growing number of churches, particularly in America, that look way more like the world than they do the bride of Christ. Churches have denied biblical truth and teaching in an effort to be appealing to this world. They've strayed from biblical teaching on issues like premarital sex, divorce, homosexuality, drunkenness, just to name a few. And we're seeing more and more churches buy into the lie that that is the loving thing to do. If someone has a terminal disease, the loving thing to do is to tell them they have a disease and that you know the cure. And we all have a terminal disease. That disease is called sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That all of us deserve death for our sins against a perfect and holy and righteous God. We have to talk about sin You have to know how bad the bad news is to appreciate how amazing the good news is. That even though you deserve eternal punishment, that God sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins so that you can have eternity with Him in a place where there is no more crying, there is no more tears, there is no more heartache. See, you can't do it on your own. The bad news is you are broken at your very core. Jesus said you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. And we throw that term born again around so often I think we've forgotten just how offensive it would have been to Nicodemus when Jesus told him that. Because what Jesus was saying is you are so flawed at your very core that you can't fix it. You can't start where you are now and try to get better and try harder. No, you need a do-over. You need to start all over from the beginning. You need to be reborn. And once you realize that, once you realize how hopeless you are in your sin, you realize how amazing the good news of Jesus Christ is. And as far as the Bible being old fashioned, core value number one at Alpine Church is we look to God and His Word in all we do, because it's not old fashioned. It is just as relevant for us today as the day it was written. God's Word is alive and active. Every time we open its pages, we get to hear from Almighty God. It's useful, it's our final authority. And it is anything but outdated. And that's going to lead us into our very last arena. And that's the idea of relativism, that everyone should get to do what is right in their own eyes. And there is just something in our fallen nature that that looks very attractive. Doesn't it? Because we always feel like our perspective is the right perspective. I mean, I confess, I feel like I'm right most of the time, and I'm probably not. So there's something about that that attracts us that we want to be able to get to decide what is right in our own eyes but here's what the Bible says Proverbs 12:15 says the way of a fool seems right in his own eyes Proverbs 26:12 says do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes there's more hope for a fool than for him Proverbs 14:12 says there is a way that seems right to a man but in the end it leads to death One of the worst periods in Israel's history in the Old Testament was during the period of the Judges. If you read the the book of Judges, man, you just see some horrific acts of evil and violence and moral chaos. And there are two verses in the book of Judges. It's the same verse. It's just written twice to give us some insight into why it was such chaos. In Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25, it says, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The moral chaos and confusion that we're experiencing in our culture today shouldn't be any surprise as so many people are just doing what is right in their own eyes. I mentioned that in some of these areas the world has made footholds even in the church. That's not anything new. That's been happening from the very beginning too. James has to address this to the early church in James 4.4. He says, you adulterers, Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. James is writing to the church here. He's writing to Christians. and He blasts the church by calling them adulterers. This is an, an imagery that was used a lot in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel when they would wander after foreign gods and after idols. God would call them adulterers. See, the church is described as the bride of Christ. And when we are friends with the world, we are unfaithful to our husband. And a lot of churches have drifted that way. And this doesn't mean that the church shouldn't be loving and welcoming to the world. We absolutely should be. Jesus hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and fishermen, but Jesus never craved what they had. Jesus wanted them to crave what he had. That's the way we should live. We should be engaged with the world. We should be in the world, but not of the world. We don't crave what the world has. We want them to crave what we have. A relationship with Jesus. 1 John 2.16 says something similar. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. These cravings for things that are temporary are not from the Father. They're from this world. As I've been preparing for this message, I had to ask myself honestly, like, what have I been craving? What, What do I crave? What's been getting most of my attention? What gets me most excited? What have I been spending most of my time and energy on? Here's another way I would ask you to think about it. What do you get most disappointed over if you don't get it? Do you get most disappointed if you don't get quality time with God and His Word and with prayer and with His people? Or do you get more disappointed if you don't get to catch the ball game or go on that hike or buy that outfit? I want to close with one last point for today. We win the war with the world by exercising spiritual discernment in our everyday lives. Romans 12, 2, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I mentioned earlier there's a pattern to this world. In fact, in some translations, Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. The world is drifting away from God. And just like in a river, when you're in a current that's got to drift to it, if you do nothing, you're going to drift with it. You can't be neutral. You have to be renewing your mind. You have to allow God to transform you by being in His Word and in prayer and with His people. If not, you will find yourself drifting but as we renew our minds, we're able to discern what God's will is. We're able to discern truth instead of just going by what seems right in our own eyes. One last verse for today, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. says, Test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. And in the context of this verse, if we read the, the greater chapter, Paul is actually talking about testing prophecies within the church. So if Paul is telling us how important it is to test what we hear inside the church, how much more important it is to test what we hear from outside. So test it against God's Word. Parents, help your kids test what they're hearing. Small group leaders and mentors, help the people that you're leading test what they're hearing. Husbands, help your wives and kids test what they're hearing. Test it against the value of God's Word and what God's Word says. And as we do that, we're going to be able to discern what is good and perfect and acceptable. Now I know it may seem a little daunting, but I would remind you, greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Lord God, I I just pray that you would make us more and more aware of the battle that is going on around us every day. And I'm thankful for this series and the reminder that spiritual warfare is not just the otherworldly stuff. It's not just angels and demons. That's part of it, but it's so much broader than that. And God, I'm thankful that the battles we face every day are all underneath your sovereign will that you allow them to happen and so you have a plan for them, you have a purpose for them. God, I just just get the sense that even today there are some people in this room that are right in the midst of a brutal spiritual battle and they don't feel like they're going to make it. They don't feel like they can hang on. I pray, God, that you'd remind them that the same God who loved them enough to leave heaven and take on flesh and go to the cross for them is the same God who's allowed whatever this battle is to filter through your loving hands and that you're right there with them, and that you will see them through it. God, last week we talked about footholds and strongholds. God, I pray that your church would be on the move. But as we leave here today, we wouldn't just kind of make these holy huddles where we try to keep out the enemy, but instead, God, we'd be taking ground. We'd be taking ground in our families, and in our schools, and in our neighborhoods. Your word says the gates of hell will not stand against your church. The gates are a defensive position. We're supposed to be on the offensive. So God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts. And I pray that you'd remind us that you go before us. I lift all this up in Jesus' holy name. Amen.